If you have not been here for the last few weeks, uh, we've, we've been in a series we're calling The Making of Champions, and we're looking at and exploring the lives of different champions of the faith throughout the history of the Bible. And today, as you might imagine, we are going to focus on the champion of champions. The champion of champions. You may know him as the Redeemer, the Bread of Life, the Lord of the Harvest, the Creator of Heaven and Earth, the Holy One of Israel the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the alpha and omega, the great physician, the great high priest, the mediator, the judge, the chief cornerstone, the author and finisher of our faith, the lamb of God, the bright and morning star, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the image of the invisible God, the great I am, the son of man, the way, the truth, and the life, the Messiah, the one and only Jesus the Christ, who died, was buried, and rose on the third day, crashing the gates of hell and taking victory over death. That's who we're going to be exploring today. Is that all right with you guys? He's the one we're interested in. And what I want to do today is I want to explore... Uh, for a few moments, a side of the resurrection story that many of you may not have heard before. It's a, it's a, it's a side of the, the, the resurrection story that I've never heard preached about before, and it's a fascinating insight into one of the nuances of the resurrection. It's a mystery. It's a conspiracy theory. It's a bribe. It involves a rumor. It involves a malicious plot to undermine the truth about Jesus and it's told in the Gospel of Matthew, and it reads like this. Read with me. Not out loud, just to yourselves. Okay. <laughs> Matthew 27. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body. Somebody say, steal the body. And tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Early on Sunday morning, as the day was dawning, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. You know you're triumphant when you can just sit down on the job. You're just done. Did it. Sat on it. His face shone like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Some of the guards went into the city, told the leading priest what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. Today, I'm going to preach for the next few moments on the subject, the mystery of the grave robber, the mystery of the grave robber. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. We come before you today in celebration. Our hearts are jubilant and overjoyed that we get to celebrate the risen Savior. 
Open our hearts today to hear what you have to say to us. Open my mouth. Speak through me. Your words through me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the the most popular genres in literature uh, is known as the murder mystery. Any murder mystery fans here today? Okay. A small number are willing to admit it. Okay. Some of the greatest novels of the last century have been written in this genre. Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Alexia Gordon's Murder in G Major, for you worship music folks. Arthur Conan Doyle's A Study in Scarlet with the memorable Sherlock Holmes. This type of story, the the murder mystery, is not only popular in novels, but also in film and TV with content like Knives Out. (laughs) Now we get to see what everybody's doing on the weekend. The Girl on the Train, every episode of CSI, Luther. Wednesday, Poker Face, The Blacklist. And for the real diehard fans of this genre, there's even the true crime version. The first 48. Cold Case. Snapped. Unsolved Mysteries. Forensic Files. Can I just say, don't watch those before you go to bed? Can I just tell you that? I've learned. And if you ever read a book or or see a show or a film in this genre, you know that they all basically start the same way. A body is found. A body that has been murdered is found. And the rest of the story is all about who done it, who committed the murder. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we have an entirely different type of murder mystery. The mystery is not about who done it. Everybody saw Christ crucified. Everybody saw him nailed to the cross. They saw him beaten and bloody. They saw him breathe his last. They saw the soldier pierce his side. They saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take him down off the cross. They saw him buried in a tomb. They saw a great stone rolled into place. So the mystery is not about who killed Jesus. The mystery happens three days later when his body goes missing from the grave. In all of the gospel accounts, the question that everybody wants to know is, where's the body of Christ? Where's the body of Christ? In Luke 24, it says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. John 20, 1 and 2 says, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, uh, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Where is the body? Luke 24, 12 says, Peter got up, ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. On Easter Sunday morning, everybody's asking the same question. Where is the body of Christ? And this is a problem for the leading elders and the high priests, because Jesus had prophesied that he would lay his life down, and three days later he would pick it up again. In fact, they crucified him for saying things like that, for claiming that he had power over death, for saying, destroy this temple, and three days I will build it back up. And here on the morning of the third day, the soldiers who were assigned to guard the tomb come to them and say, he's gone. They said there was a great earthquake, and then, then, then this terrifying angelic being came down. And rolled the stone away. And we were so terrified we were rendered unconscious. And when we came to, the body was gone and the tomb 
was empty. When the high priests and the elders hear this story, they come together and they agree. This story cannot get out. This story must be suppressed. This story will spread chaos among the people. We will be accused of murdering the Messiah and thousands of people will start believing that Jesus is the Christ. It's time for some damage control. It's time for some spin. It's time for an alternative narrative. It's time for some propaganda. We need to spread a different story. And so the elders and the chief priests gave the soldiers a large sum of money and said, tell everybody that the disciples took the body, stole the body. Now, at the time of the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, some people still believe that. Not many, but some people did. The rumor was still in circulation. It's known as the stolen body hypothesis. Or I like to call it the grave robber theory. And while some people believe the story, it never really took hold because there was not only no evidence to support it, but there didn't seem to be a compelling motive for anybody to steal the body. Maybe the Romans stole the body to avoid the possibility of the tomb being venerated by the faithful, but that didn't seem likely because they really had no use for a debunked would-be Jewish prophet. And if they had the body, surely they would have produced it when the disciples began to go around saying they had seen the risen Christ. Maybe the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the high priest stole the body so that they could prove he didn't rise. But that doesn't really add up because if they had the body, they would have been all too happy to bring out the corpse of Jesus as a reminder of what happens when you claim to be God. Maybe the disciples stole the body so they could later claim Jesus had risen. But that seems unlikely because they were hiding behind locked doors wanting to disappear after their bitter disappointment. They returned to Galilee, pulled their fishing boats out of storage, and were prepared to return to the life they had before they met him. They weren't preparing for a revolution. They were planning their retirement. They were demoralized. They were defeated. Besides, claiming to see the risen Christ would later become grounds for execution. And while people are willing to die for something they believe in, it's difficult to imagine the disciples subjecting themselves to stoning, crucifixion, torture, and martyrdom for a hoax and a fraud of their own making. So the body was missing, and nobody knew where it was. And the lie had not really been catching on. And then something very mysterious, terribly mysterious, began to happen. And it was exactly what the high priest had worried about. Jesus began to appear. Within a few hours after dawn on Easter morning, reports began to circulate of Jesus sightings. People all over Jerusalem, Galilee, and Emmaus were reporting encounters with the risen Jesus. He appeared to the women who had gone to the tomb with the funeral spices. He appeared to Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot. At one point, he appeared to over 500 women, men, and children at the same time. Every day, there were new sightings, new reports of people encountering Jesus. He would show up unexpectedly in a room full of people and teach them. He showed up on the beach of the Sea of Galilee and made breakfast. Amen. This is where I fell in love with Jesus. I'm a breakfast person. Made breakfast for his disciples. He appeared on the road to Emmaus, began to teach his followers about the kingdom of God. He even showed up for Thomas, who said, I will not believe these reports until I can put my fingers in the wounds of his hand and in the wound of his side. Sometimes he would appear unrecognizable at first. It would only slowly dawn on the person that the person they were speaking to was Jesus. 
His body was in some respects the same as before. He still carried the same wounds, and yet it was somehow different. He was capable of moving through walls, entering into locked rooms. He wasn't a spirit or a ghost because he would eat and drink with his followers. They could touch him. They could feel him. It was the strangest, most mysterious experience imaginable. And after seeing him, people would be changed. They would be willing to sacrifice their lives to spread his mission. They would be willing to risk everything in order to share their experience with Jesus with others. For 40 days, he appeared teaching, preaching, comforting, encouraging. Then as quickly as he appeared, he vanished. 40 days after his crucifixion, He gathered his followers together, gave them his final instructions, his final words of encouragement, and then he vanished into thin air. So what happened? How how do we account for these sightings? How do we account for this eyewitness testimony? And more specifically, how do we account for the empty tomb? Where was the body of Christ? Now, I said earlier that the grave robber theory didn't really hold water, that it had largely been dismissed. But if you will allow me this morning, I would propose to you that whether the high priest knew it or not, they were actually on to something with the story of the grave robber. I would propose to you that the grave robber theory actually does carry some weight. I would propose to you that, in fact, the grave had been robbed on Easter morning, but not by one of the usual suspects. You see, on the day of Pentecost... Simon Peter, renewed by the restoration of his relationship with the risen Lord, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, stood up in front of thousands of his fellow faithful Jewish believers, and at the risk of imprisonment, execution, exile, and shame, called out the grave robber by name. Acts 2. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. This is what he said. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you already know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And then he gives the identity of the grave robber. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In other words, the grave was robbed on Easter morning, but the grave robber wasn't the disciples, wasn't the Sanhedrin, wasn't the Pharisees, Sadducees, or the high priests. The grave robber was the one suspect that Jesus' enemies and critics failed to consider and refused to investigate. The grave robber was Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, the giver of life, who reached down from glory... After his son lay dead in the tomb for three days, rolled the stone away, breathed life into the lungs of Jesus, robbing death of its sting, robbing the grave of its victory, robbing hell of its keys. On this Easter Sunday morning, I would proclaim to you that the God of heaven and earth is the ultimate grave robber. Somebody say, thank God for the grave robber. (laughs) In fact, without realizing it, Mary Magdalene had already cracked the case. John 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, 
and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? <laughs> Next verse. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll get him. Oh, the irony is so rich. She's accusing Jesus, who she mistakes as a gardener, of robbing Jesus from the tomb. She doesn't realize it, but the man she's accusing of robbing the, the tomb is in fact the actual grave robber. Jesus is God in the flesh. He laid himself down and he picked himself back up. The high priest conspiracy theory was partly correct. There was a conspiracy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were co-conspirators. They conspired to crush the power of death, hell, and the grave, to rob the tomb of the body of Jesus, and in so doing, to rob the enemy of his power over you. Here's why this matters for us. The Apostle Paul writes to us in his letter to the Romans, and this is what he says. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if that Spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the God who robbed the grave of Jesus will rob the graves of all who love him and someday will come to rob your grave as well. Somebody say, thank God for the grave robber. Now, now some of you may say that's well and good. The resurrection will be important to me someday, but I'm not terribly occupied with my own demise at this time. I'm not really even thinking about the afterlife. I'm more concerned about my current situation. If that's you, I would propose to you today that the resurrection isn't just about your death in the future. It's about your life in the here and now. Here's why. Write this down. Number one, because of the resurrection, sin has been robbed of its power. It's been robbed of its power. This week I was at the Cheshire Inn. My family, we like to go hang out at the Cheshire. That's our little spot. And at the Cheshire, there is this massive stuffed grizzly bear. Terrifying. Absolutely. You should go see it. Seriously. I, I mean, even when you know it's stuffed, it's still scary. So we go in there, and, you know, we hang out in there. And this week, we were there. And I was sitting in the lobby, and a little family came in through the front doors, and they were heading over to the elevators. And they had, it was a, a, um, it was a, a father and, and, and a wife, and a father and a mother, and a little three-and-a-half or four-year-old girl. They come walking in, they're coming over to the elevator, and out of the corner of her eye, she sees the grizzly bear. And I'm telling you, this little girl turned around, screamed, ran towards the front door, almost all the way out to the parking lot. She was terrified, right? Her parents had to run after her to keep her from going out in the parking lot. They got her, they brought her in, they're like, no, it's not, the, the bear is dead. It's got no power. There's nothing to be afraid of. Well, she wouldn't believe him. She just would not believe him. She was just terrified. She was, she had like, you know how you get so scared you hold your breath? I thought this little girl was going to pass out. She's holding her breath. Finally, her parents, both of them, got between her and the bear, holding her hand. She covered her eyes. They ran through the lobby and got to the elevator. She was terrified. The thing that had power over that little girl, in fact, had no power at all. It was a stuffed bear. Sometimes we allow sin to have power over us, like that little girl allowed a stuffed bear to have power over her. Satan's like a, loring, a roaring lion, but at the cross, the lion got defanged, declawed, and put in his place. <laughs> Can I just tell you today, because of the resurrection, sin has no power over you. 
Some of us today remain bound by the power of our own destructive habits and patterns of thought and behavior. In fact, there is no person within the sound of my voice who has not failed to live up to their own moral and ethical standards at some point, much less the standards of a perfect, righteous, and just God. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize the corruption and hypocrisy of your own soul. We've all failed on multiple fronts. We've all sinned. But when God robbed the grave, he robbed the power of sin from your life. The scripture says this, Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Those thoughts, those words, those deeds that you have kept hidden in the dark, afraid of their power, the sin and the, and the shame of the shackles that hold you have been broken loose by the grace of the grave robber. Sin has no power over you. Somebody say, thank God for the grave robber. Not only has sin been robbed of its power, but shame has been robbed of its strength. Shame has been robbed of its strength. Some of you will be old enough to remember when you could go into a restaurant or, or a bar or a bowling alley, and there was a smoking section. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but if you were ever in that environment, if you've ever been in a bar, casino, bowling alley, you know how hard it is to get the residual scent of smoke out of your clothes, even long after you've left the smoke-filled environment. Shame is like the smell of smoke. Even when you've left the life of sin behind, the residual presence of shame can cling to you for years and years. But the resurrection of Jesus robs shame of its strength over you. Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's no shame in him. There's no condemnation in him. There's no humiliation in him. The power of shame was broken by the God through Christ at the cross and grace. Grace was poured out at the tomb. Some of you today, you've been away from church for a long time. And the reason you've been away from church is because there's still an element, a residual bit of shame that's clinging to you. Can I just tell you, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He has come to set you free. Sin has been robbed of its power. Shame has been robbed of its strength. And this is the last one. Fear has been robbed of its force. Fear has been robbed of its force. In the classic film, The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's little puppy Toto pulls back a curtain to reveal that the great, powerful, terrifying wizard is nothing more than a cowering fool. When Christ rose from the dead, he pulled back the curtain on fear to reveal that there was nothing there to fear at all. Fear has been swallowed up in victory. Fear has been swallowed up in the love and the grace of God. The scripture says this, 2 Timothy 1, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This grace has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We have nothing to fear, church. 
We have nothing to fear. Death is under his feet. Disease is under his feet. Sin has been crushed. Guilt, shame, and condemnation have been broken. And the light of the gospel of peace shines forth from an empty grave. If you will open your heart to the great grave robber, he will steal your anxiety and replace it with peace. He'll steal your sin and replace it with righteousness. He'll steal your shame and replace it with confidence. He'll, he'll steal your mortality and replace it with eternal life in him. Now, when the last apostle to die wrote one of his final books, he reveals a glimpse of where the body of Jesus ended up. In the book of Revelation, Revelation John of Patmos has a vision of heaven. You should buckle your seats for this one, y'all. And in heaven, he sees Jesus, and this is what he sees. Revelation 1. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Today on this Easter Sunday, we worship the champion of champions because it's only through him that we become champions ourselves. Putting your faith in David doesn't mean you can kill a giant. Putting your faith in Joshua doesn't mean the walls are going to fall down. Putting your faith in Moses doesn't guarantee you're going to set the people free. But putting your faith in Christ means that you, like him, will conquer the grave. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to close with this. Earlier I mentioned the final moment that Jesus' body was seen on the earth. The moment he disappeared into thin air. And I said that at that moment, this was the last moment anybody saw his body on earth. At that moment he gave final instructions, final encouragement. But I didn't tell you what his instruction and encouragement were. Here's what he said to them as he was fading from sight. Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he said this. Here's his encouragement. That was instruction. Here's his encouragement. And surely I am with you. Surely I am with you. Surely I am with you even to the very end of the age. Where is Jesus? He's right here. He's right here. He's right here right now. He's with you. Right now in this moment. Surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. Where's Jesus? He's here. He's in this room. He's in your heart. He is as close as your next breath. Sin and shame and fear have no power over you. Jesus is with you. He's with you. He's with you here at the Tivoli. He's with you down at Shaw. He's with you, brothers, at Stepping Into the Light Shelter. He's with all you folks at Eckert Park Nursing Home. He's with everybody online this morning. He's, he's really here, and he's really with you. And if you'll allow me, I'm just going to take it one step deeper. You know, a lot of preachers like to close three or four times. I'm just going to close one more time. I told you at the beginning that everybody was asking the same question. Where is the body of Christ? 
Where is the body of Christ? You see, here's the real mystery. Here's the real miracle. Here's the real power of Easter. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gave the ultimate resolution to the case of the missing body of Christ. Here's what he said to the church. Here's what he's saying to you and me. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians. He says, now you are the body of Christ. He said, you. Somebody say, I'm the, I'm the body. Say, we're the body. He said, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Where's the body? We're the body. We're the body. You and I are his hands and feet. You and I are the hands and feet of Jesus. If his spirit dwells in you, then you are his emissary, his ambassador, his messenger of love to the world around you. He left it to us to bring justice. He left it to us to bring righteousness. He left it to us to bring healing to the globe, to bring joy in the morning, to bring peace in the midst of the storm. You are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. You are the messengers of the greatest story ever told. You are the feet of the gospel. You are the children of the grave robber. Somebody say, thank God for the grave robber. So let's rob some graves. Let's rob the grave of despair and despondency, hopeless and bitterness. Let's rob the graves of addiction and abuse, of oppression and injustice. Let's rob the graves of poverty and crime. Let's rob the graves of racism and subjugation. Let's rob the graves of misery and persecution. Let's rob the graves of sin and sorrow. Let's conspire with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to pull our friends out of the grave of sin, to pull our brothers and sisters out of the grave of complacency, to pull our city and our country out of the graves of disunity, strife, chaos, and confusion. And we don't even need to move the stone. He's given us the keys. By the power of the Holy Spirit, let's rob death, hell, and the grave with the message and the mission of Jesus. Let's bring people and God together this morning. Amen, somebody? Somebody say thank God for the grave robber. I'm going to say it one last time. I'm going to say he is risen, and somebody should shout, he is risen indeed. Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you stand with me this morning? Amen. My prayer for you is that the great grave robber will break through the fortress of your heart this morning and set you free. Some of you still have the, the stone in front of your heart. You still have the stone in front of your heart. Let the Holy Spirit move the stone away and bring life into the depth of your soul. True life, abundant life, real life, eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you really so grateful that you are the ultimate grave robber, that you rob death and hell of their power. We pray, Lord God, this morning that you would reach into the tombs of our own heart, break through the stone of our own soul, and pour your life-giving spirit into us. Raise us up again. Remind us who we are in you. Put us on a path. Let us be emissaries. Let us be ambassadors of love with you. Let us be agents of transformation around this city. Let us bring the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ to every person we meet. Let us be resurrection people. 
Let us live the life that you've called us to live. Let us bring life, Lord God, to our family, our friends, and our community. We love you. We honor you. We celebrate you. And we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And somebody shout, amen, amen, amen.